Welcome to The Archive Project. I'm your co-host, Amanda Bullock. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. This week, as we look toward the 2022 Portland Book Festival on November 5th, we feature excerpts from three Portland Book Festival 2021 events, conversations with Danica Kelly, Atsuro Riley, and Devin Walker-Figueroa. The three poets joined us remotely, beaming in from Iowa, San Francisco, and Brooklyn, and the interviewers were live from Literary Arts and Powell's Bookstore as part of an evening of literary programming. If you love poetry, you won't want to miss this hour. And especially if the word poetry intimidates you at all, I sincerely hope you'll stay tuned. It's a pleasure for anyone who cares about words to hear these talented poets dive deep into their processes around language. And you definitely don't have to be anything close to a poetry expert, I'm certainly not, to find joy in these conversations. First up, a conversation with Christopher Rose and Danica Kelly, author of The Renunciations, which Oprah.com called, quote, a lion-hearted odyssey through the self, in which the poet offers us the words to create our own destinies. I, I would like you to kind of walk us through the journey of the collection. Like, when did you first conceptualize it and how long were you working on this? Oh, conceptualizing. Um, <laughs> I, there are poems in this book that, are, that I wrote in 2013, so before the publication of my first book. But the majority of the poems were written, I would say, in about a two and a half year period I don't know, like my marriage was ending. So all of this is like fun stuff. Um, <laughs> and I was trying to process some of that. And at the same time, some difficult memories from being in California, being a child in California uh, sort of rose to the surface. And I was writing poems to investigate why those narratives, why those stories that I had about myself that came out of my family, why they sat at the center of my life. And the poems became a place to, to work through that, to figure out what I wanted to keep and what I wanted to let go. So it was a pretty intense period of writing. I was living in Western New York and for most of it. And I had a lot of alone time. <laughs> and when I'm alone, as it turns out, uh, I write a lot. I realized that I had uh, enough poems. It looked like I had, a, I had sort of reached a critical mass. I thought to myself, well, let's see what this looks like, put some things together, put some poems next to each other. And that was the, the start of the renunciations. And how did that process compare to your previous collection, Bestiary? Oh, that's a great question. In some ways it was similar, but in writing Bestiary, I, <laughs> I'm just remembering it was, uh, I graduated from my MFA program and I was in a PhD program and I was just writing. And uh, I knew that I didn't want any of the poems or most of the poems in my master's thesis. Like the, that, my master's thesis wasn't really a book, right? And so uh, I was writing poems and writing poems after I graduated. And again, I reached a kind of critical mass and I thought, well, maybe this is a book. And over the course of about three or four years, I was sort of shuffling things in, taking things out. Um, but I didn't have... Uh, as concentrated a focus, I would say. I think that's one of the main differences. I think Bestiary kind of touches on many themes, whereas The Renunciations really focuses on two strands. Our theme for this feature is tenderness, and a number of your poems deal with this theme, specifically like the intimacy of the body. Um, can you discuss how this is woven throughout your work? 
it took me a long time. I think this is true for many people. It took me a long time to come to tenderness and I first practiced it with my friends. So the first way that I learned to practice tenderness uh, was outward. And uh, with a lot of therapy, I've been in therapy for, I don't know, seven or 800 years now, <laughs> like since I was 18, through the process of working with therapists and sort of thinking through like why the difficulty of extending tenderness to myself, um, I finally began to practice it, like with myself, I began to practice tenderness with myself, kindness, compassion, generosity. Uh, I, I began practicing a practice of turning that inward that really facilitated the writing of the poems about childhood sexual abuse. I don't think I could have written those poems without that practice. I needed to know that I could stop at any time. I could stop writing whenever I wanted to stop writing. I needed to know that I was safe, that there was someone who would always be there to take care of me, which was me. So there was a tenderness that I extended to the to myself, which I then extended to the speaker, which I believe is, is I extended to the reader, although that's a little bit harder to know, I think. But it, it, that seems to be, folks seem to have gotten it, which I appreciate. So in the collection, you have a number of um, blackout erasure poems, um, the deer poems, these old epistolary poems. And um, each deer poem that is in the now section is paired with a, a blackout poem. And then the ones in the then section are, are by themselves. Um, and then you have that second now section that has a large collection of them. So. Um, can you just discuss the process of like ordering your poems and what did you want the reader to experience through that? Hmm. You know, I hadn't noticed that about the redacted poems heading the, the then sections, but I think that makes sense. So in the, the now sections deal with the end of the marriage and the speaker, uh, there are a number of poems, the epistolary poems, Dear, and then an M dash where the speaker is writing to the beloved, it is a reaching toward. That's definitely a part of the reason that we have the redacted poems followed in those sections by an epistolary poem, right? A dear to the beloved. In the then sections, uh, those poems are dealing, or the speaker is working through how the abuse she experienced sits at, in her life. And so there is no offering, there is no reaching toward. <laughs> and uh, I think of that as a kind of a protective measure, um, but also one that's like uh, about how she has chosen to go on this journey, right? It's a, it's, it's a lonely one. The redacted poems, those redacted epistles, I think of as, as, almost, as near epigraphs, right? They're sort of aphoristic. Take a little peek at maybe the first one. Uh, the grown woman remembers when she breaks a woman to save herself. I found that in a letter I wrote. <laughs> and that was kind of surprising to, to find these moments in these letters that weren't meant to be shared, these, these letters that were really private, um, to find something to guide me in the writing of, of and the ordering, sequencing of the book. No, I, I was, I'm, I mean, I'm so fascinated by, by the collection and just um, like, you know, in a moment of honesty, it was, it was very hard for me to read poetry throughout the pandemic and to just really slow my mind down and just sit with your work for two months just so I felt, felt like I could do this well. Um, I, I mean, this, this moved me and it was kind of the perfect 
work for me to move through the p- pandemic. But back to your work, more importantly, you have in the notes at the end that a couple of the poems were the result of an exchange with the visual artist Susanna Kwan. Um, mm-hmm. Can you discuss the exchange and the use of what were possibly a crisis poems here? Yeah, so Susanna and I were grad students uh, at Vanderbilt at the same time. Uh, I was in a PhD program. She was in the MFA in writing program. Uh, she was writing fiction. One day she drew me a bird. It was a strange bird. And uh, and I wrote her a poem, not in response to that bird, but as a thank you for the, for the bird. <laughs> and afterward, uh, we spent some time, like we sort of exchanged some letters and I think I proposed that we do a little art exchange. So she sent me images and then I wrote poems in response to the, to the, to the paintings. Uh, and this was when she moved back to the Bay area. So after she finished her MFA, so I would very carefully take the, like even now, like thinking about it, my hands are sweating. Um, <laughs> Cause I was so, I was so nervous with her work, but I would take out the watercolor and I would, I would compose um, a few poems, uh, two to three and then I would mail those to her. And then she would send me uh, more paintings in response to the poems. And we did that, I, would, I think for like four or five rounds, there was never a sense of, oh, maybe we'll make a book out of this. Maybe this is a larger project. It was just something fun. It was just something fun to do. Uh, and it made going to the mailbox uh, a delight. <laughs> uh, and a lot those poems are uh, some of some of that work that's that's much earlier. So and like Sanctuary is one of those. Um, I believe there there are a few um, where I was like beginning to think through some of the some of these notions without really understanding that I was headed towards a book. I wondered if you could discuss um, the kind of the several instances of interactions with things that exist to guide us, like oracles, tarot, religion, and, and how did that come to be in the book? Hmm. So I have a PhD in English, and I've said that like entirely too many times. Uh, I don't feel like super precious about that, but I do, I have practiced for a long time close readings. Um, and I really like the idea of having lenses to look through um, to try to understand things. And the tarot was absolutely uh, one of those devices. But also, I got a devastating tarot reading, and I, I would say too. Similarly, uh, the oracle. Both of those figures or elements in the work are lenses that allow the 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 speaker already knows what is happening. The speaker understands on some level that this marriage is ending. The speaker understands on some level that the father has made choices that she will never understand, and yet she still needs to work through them. And so the mythology, Greek mythology, the oracles, a little bit of astrology, the tarot, those become small tools to, to help the reader or help the speaker sort of work through some of, some of those elements to come to terms with where she was, where she is, and to some extent where she would like to be. In order to, to get to where she would like to be, she has to reckon, I think, with the, with the past and, and with the present in some really meaningful ways. And I want to say one more thing about that. And I think it's something like, like my family doesn't have great tools. Um, and so in some ways, it's like the poem becomes a kind of tool as well 
or it's like, uh, I'm just like trying to figure it out. Like, how do I figure it out? How do I make sense of this um, in a way that is compassionate and thoughtful and tender um, and safe for me first? Safe for me as the writer, safe for me as the feeler first. Um, and those are some of the routes that I found through through some really difficult material. In the final section of the work, this deals with a very physical journey. And there's an interaction with the physical world that, I mean, it's, it's, it's throughout the entirety of the collection, but really that, that final section, it's such a contrast to, to everything that came before. What caused that? Like, what, what was the, the thinking behind that? Well, thinking is likely too strong a word. <laughs> I would I would say because I didn't I don't think I even I, I recognized this until recently. Um, I was talking with some students about the work. Um, we were talking about metaphor, and I think early in the collection, the speaker relies more on metaphor to make sense of the world, right? To make sense of the end of that relationship, to make sense of the abuse. Um, and in working through what has happened and what the, and what she would like to do, I think that begins to fall away. That was not intentional on my part. And that, that was, uh, uh intuitive, I, w- I would say. Uh, so in that final section, there are no gods, right? There's no myth. There's no, there's, there are some ghosts, maybe <laughs> the speaker is not entirely sure. Uh, I really did have that experience where there was a lot happening in my front room. And I was like, that's not my business. I'm not going to go in there. So I think it was more, it was like, so one of the journeys then is the speaker becoming more grounded, becoming more capable of of being present and of apprehending the world without the many veils of metaphor. Right. I mean, there's still some, but it, it sort of falls away so that the final deer, there's an actual deer in it. I mean, it's dead. Uh, that's not a spoiler because it's a collection of poetry, but, and also poets. What are you going to do? So you said in a recent interview that one of the appeals of poetry is that poems are like documentaries. Um, <laughs> can you explain more, particularly in relationship to the to renunciations and that relationship the poet has to these moments that are documented with the ability to explore it through language? Mm-hmm. I was thinking there of... Uh, writing about work that is emotionally open, uh, where it can feel like raw. People love the language of, of raw, right? And I think if we're doing it right, it does feel like inevitable, right? The poems feel inevitable, but there is so much artifice. And it reminded me of documentaries where a, a well-done documentary seems like, well, this is obviously the truth and we don't see the hand of the director we don't see the hand of the filmmaker in the same way. And I was thinking about everything that's left on the floor, everything like the, the poems that aren't included, the, the information. So in this collection, there are redactions, there are uh, erasures, there is a withholding of information. That, those moves felt important to me in working with that material as an expression of that tenderness, that the shaping, right, the withholding the directing where this, the, the reader looks or can't look, that felt like something really important to, for me to acknowledge and explore and think through. So I think that there's something in 
in acknowledging the shaping that lets poems do the sort of magical things that they do, which is a little bit different from, there's just like so much less connective tissue, right? There's so much less, there, there's so much space. <laughs> or we're really asking our readers to like trust us and to leap with us and to follow us. It's not accidental. It's not frivolous. It's, uh, we're making many, many choices. You're listening to a conversation from the 2021 Portland Book Festival. The 2022 Portland Book Festival is on November 5th in downtown Portland. More information at literary-arts.org. Let's rejoin this conversation with poet and critic David Beispiel as he interviews Atsuro Riley, the author of Herd Horde, about Riley's inventive, lyrical new collection told in a chorus of voices calling back to his birthplace in the South Carolina Low Country. I want to ask you first to talk about, in a sense, how you came to write the book in a particular way. Um, there are a lot of different people, characters, figures speaking in this book, a kind of chorus of speakers. I um, would like you to start by just talking about how did you come to these voices? Who are these voices? What do you feel like they were able to say through the poems? Right. It's a wonderful question. Uh, the book really came out of some of my reactions to writing my first book. So writing my first book was really, in some ways, a classic first book, a very I and me book. It was about a single consciousness, a single character, a boy in the low country of South Carolina. And along the way, writing that book and writing those poems, along the way, I got very interested in what I call herds or herd tales, what I grew up understanding to be herd tales. So the things the village says, the things they say, the things you overhear, um, the things that get passed along. So herds, herd tales, um, originary community stories, and also Pequot phrases, exciting phrases, lubricious phrases that you hear people say. And so some of those made their way in the first book, but I got very interested in what the potential of those might be. So I started to dream about a book in which we might hear from all of the we, all of the our, the community, and really make a book which tried to hear the music of the we and the hour of the community. So I'm thinking about chorus because you bring up chorus. I'm thinking about chorus in two ways choral in the sense that the entire community is involved. So all the solitudes, all the distresses, all the losses, all the joys and marvels, um, all of the honey of that life and all of the heartbreak of those lives um, could make their way into this book by way of the stories they tell. So that's one thing, one aspect of choral. And then the other was, um, I, I thought, I might be able to be very explicit and put choruses throughout the book. So there are a number of short poems peppered throughout the book called Chorus, and then they have a little title appended to them. Um, and my thought there was, number one, uh, you know, I feel the greatest human achievement, the greatest literary achievement is really the short poem because you're really putting the screws to whatever skill you hope to have. And if you can get, if you can land a short poem, that's a really spectacular thing. 
And so I was interested in being able to include some short poems, and that became a way to do the choruses. And then I really like looking back at um, ancient literature, looking all the way back to the beginnings of literature, looking back at oral literature. I really like the appearance of the chorus, um, either real or imagined, walking onto the stage, bringing movement with them, you know, chorus, of course, being originally a dance thought. So chorus originally meant dance or movement. And then, um, so the idea, and we've all seen, you know, in a Greek tragedy, the chorus comes in or a character serves as the chorus. So I got very interested in that. So you'll find throughout the book, these choruses for better or worse, in which, um, a character or the chorus comments maybe obliquely on some of what's going on. Yeah, that's really interesting. When you were saying heard, were you speaking of H-E-A-R-D and also H-E-A-R-D? And H-E-R-D? No, H-E-A-R-D. Um, some people have now come back to me and said, hmm, H-E-R-D, interesting. Yeah. Um, and I'm afraid that was lost on me and, and I wasn't really thinking about that. But, um, you know, I think of word, W-O-R-D, and heard, H-E-A-R-D, as kind of cousins in yeah. a wonderful way. Um, you know, if you think about the book leaning very hard on the ancient sense, the ancient image of the word horde, um, then this is a kind of, you know, refocusing of that or maybe opening the lens a little bit to also include not only words, but then the herds that those words make. So phrases and stories and certainly music and songs and rhythms and cadences and so on. Yeah, well, in the middle of herd, H-E-R-D, is an ear, and, and that connects to what you're saying about word. I wonder, too, um, when you were talking about the chorus, um, do you feel that you're making a, a extended drama, you know, a, um, a performance of voices for this book? There are a lot of people speaking. Um, I want to get to the poem called Moth, which has a particular and really... Um, mm -hmm. central figure speaking in the book. Um, how did you think about ordering these voices? Right, right. So um, I suppose the, the uh, it became a very organic thing. That's the easy way to say it. So um, I wanted very much to make... Um, to make individual poems, really to listen closely, back to your thought about the year, I wanted to listen closely to what the characters are saying or are feeling, or in many cases in this book, alas, the characters are not saying, they're busily not saying in a very, unheard. hopefully, yeah. uh, right, right, yeah. a hopefully musical way, but they are very much keeping from us some particular, uh, you know, kind of data. Um, they are in, instead dealing with the feelings or dealing with the aftermath and so on. Um, who are these anyway, people? Anyway. Um, uh, who are the people who are having these feelings? Right. So um, it, it varies. Um, in the case of the poem you mentioned, Moth, um, what we know um, from the poem what the poem gives us is that it's probably a woman. Um, it's probably um, 
uh, it, we don't we don't as it happens ever know her actual name. She gives herself a name, um, and she tells us a little bit about why. Um, and in every case, back to your question about how they're all related, I really thought you know there's a wonderful moment in a John Berger essay, um, and I wish I could find the reference because I keep bringing this up and I don't have the proper reference. But he talks about. Um, the petals around, say, a daisy, or in the terms of this book, a dog daisy. And at the center, of course, is the black core. And arrayed around the black core of the daisy are the lovely petals. And they are all operating from the same core, all deriving from the same core, and they are overlapping ever so slightly as they go around. And they form a whole. But each one of those petals is really concerned with its own life. So in this poem Moth, she is very much concerned with her own life and tells us about it. And in the other one, so um, in a certain way, they end up making a little symphony or mm -hmm. a, little, a little drama. But they meant to start with themselves uh, you yeah. know they they originate from their own seed bed and then they flourish from there and as it happens they kind of touch yeah yeah that's really great i wonder if we could have you read moth uh now oh, sure um uh, and I, if i can just introduce it while you find it on page 18 um it has an epigraph candies stop up highway 52 and that's um runs north south in south carolina that highway um, and um, it begins by announcing her uh, quote-unquote, as you have in the poem name, Candy. And um, yeah, please read that. Right, right. So um, for our listeners, so the reason that head note is there, uh, Candy Stop Up Highway 52, is earlier in the book, we learn about some boys who are kind of um, taken into a kind of slavery to work the tobacco, a tarry, sticky, horrible business, and they are dumped at the end of the poem at a place called Candy Stop Up Highway 52, so that's why that's there. Another fun thing about this poem is that there's a secret little cameo in here of a band, a jazz band, and that jazz band is a real live band, which was the Jenkins Orphanage Band in Charleston, South Carolina, which became quite famous um, for training jazz musicians, names of whom you would know, and they went on to um, play at presidential inaugurations, etc., etc. So that's kind of a fun thing in here. So the poem is called Moth. I've been candy since I came here young. My born name keeps, but I don't say. To her who my mama was, I was pure millstone, cumbrance. Child ain't but a toe sack full of bane. Well, I lit out right quick, hitched and so forth, legged it, was rid. Acabee at first, then Thicket hid, then Wadmalaw, out to Nash's meat yard, Obie's juke. At county home they had this jazz horn, drumbeat, orphan band, them lambs. They, they let me bide and listen. This grisly man, he came, he buttered me, then took me off, swore I was surely something. Let me ride in back. 
something. Snared, spat on thing, being more like more so ever what he meant. No, I'd never sound what brunts he called me, what he done, had I a hundred mouths. How his mouth repeats on me down the years, everlastingly riveled looking like rot fruit. Wasn't it runched up like a grub? First chance I inched off back through bindweed, I was gone. Nothing wrong with gone as a place for living, whereby a spore eats air when she has to, where I fairly much clung for peace. Came the day I came here young, I mothed myself, I cleaved apart. A soul can hide like moth on bark. My born name keeps, but I don't say. Great, thank you so much. What a beautiful reading. And that word cleaved, that comes in late in the poem, that's really a, a, a spectacular surprise. I think that's great. Um, I know with poems that are written with you know, dramatic monologues like these are, there is a relationship between you, the, the, the Riley who writes, and the figures who speak. And I'm wondering if um, you've thought about how you think about that, the relationship between you, the poet, and the figure speaking in the poem. Are they gifts to you? Are you embodying or creating their consciousnesses? Where's, what's the transference or not transference? What's your relationship to them Make as the maker? Right, right, yeah. Um, I mean, I think mostly we can't know these things, right? So um, it has been a great, a great boon to my, um, as it were, productivity. It's been a great boon to my work to be able to invent a character so even as i said in my first book which was an i and a me book it was really not i atsura riley the the writer um it was a character that i invented called romy and then it that then it became possible it became possible to hear the heart's ache it became possible to hear the cadence and the conundrum it became possible to hear the music as it were um, and it became possible to tell the truth as much as I could because as Emily Dickinson told us to do you have to tell it slant so in my in my kind of cosmology telling it slant has meant putting it in the voice of someone else um, and in this book certainly um, you know there are as I said all of the solitudes and distresses and losses and heartbreaks and uh, little joys, um, little moments um, are quite familiar to me, um, but I would find it very difficult to write about them as myself, as an I. So I really loved the idea and found a lot of freedom, thanks for asking, found a lot of freedom in... Um, kind of distributing the wealth across many, many voices. Um, and, uh, you know, I found, I found it 
possible to tell the truth about a great many things. The other difference that I'll just share in our closing minutes is, you know, in the first book I felt I was consumed with not telling because that child had a great deal of trauma and abuse and other kinds of things. And he was kind of huffing and puffing as hard as he could with as much verbal energy as possible to not tell that um, and to kind of get at it another way. And in this book, there are some, as you heard in this poem, um, there's some direct telling, even as she's keeping some things close to her to, to her chest, there is some direct telling. So it has been uh, a relief to be able to say some of these things, to sing some of these things and set them to music and tell the truth about them, but do it through another voice. You're listening to a conversation from the 2021 Portland Book Festival on Literary Arts, The Archive Project. Let's rejoin this conversation with Devin Walker-Figueroa, author of Philomath, which contemplates beauty, nature, and the landscape of the eponymous town in Oregon, diving deep into language with poet Jennifer Perrine. I thought we could just dive right into talking about um, one of the themes that emerge in your book, Philomath. Um, which is about naming. And so many of the poems reflect on naming, and names of places like Philomath and of Kings Valley. And even you dig into the origins of your own name and other names you might have had. I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about um, how that theme emerged in the book and, and what role names and namings play for you. Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. I think, first of all, of the epigraph or the third section of the book, which is from King Lear, um, Act 3, Scene 4, and Gloucester's addressing his son without realizing it has, it's his son and says, what are you there? Your names? Like, what are you there? Your names? And it's just like, I know it's two separate questions, but when you hear that in a theater, when you hear that spoken, it sounds conjoined, like you are what? You are your name. And then all of these characters in that play, including Gloucester, Kent, Albany, France, Burgundy, that are there called by place names. And just kind of thinking of people as places and places as people was very, uh, what do I want to say, like a point of, of obsession for me a little bit during, during the writing of this. And I think, too, there's a Emile Chiron quote I'd probably want to bring in here, too, which is from his book. I think it's from The Temptation to Exist. But he says, one always perishes by the self one assumes to bear a name is to claim an exact mode of collapse. And there's so much um, kind of collapsing that goes on in the book, some of which happens internally and some of which happens, you know, in the place settings by fire, by uh, logging, etc. Um, so I think that that's a little bit of a window in maybe to, to the way that I went about approaching naming. I guess I also just look at names as symbols that we string together with that impossible and <laughs> admirable hope of communication. Yeah, that seems to be, um, you know, there's a, a poem in the book where you talk about learning a language and, and struggling to name things in that language, but it feels like English is also that language sometimes that we're struggling to communicate in. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The you know, our, our mother tongue is also a, <laughs> a, a strange language to us. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, thank you. Yeah. It's a great question. One of the things that um, I was really curious about in terms of the name is you begin the book with the, the opening poem, Philomath, which 
begins with talking about how that name emerges out of the, the definition for love of learning. And learning and teaching show up so often throughout the book where you're, uh, it seems like you're kind of meditating on the ways that our environment or maybe the collapse of our environment teaches us and what we learn from it. I was wondering if you could just share a little bit about how you were thinking about those themes of learning and teaching in the course of writing these poems. Yeah, absolutely. For one thing, I would have to say my own education has been pretty unconventional. Growing up in such a rural place, you end up going to small schools. I was homeschooled for quite a while as well. And I'm completing my second master's degree right now, but never formally graduated from high school or got a GED because of the homeschooling. Mm. So, and um, I also was very immersed in arts education. So ballet and, and um, harp, which my parents uh, sacrificed greatly to get me lessons and to drive me into those lessons. And so, yeah, I think like learning, I've never taken it for granted. I've always kind of seen the behind the scenes of education uh, my parents, you know, educated my sister and me in large part. And I think that if I'm ever too old to be learning, I'm probably too old to be living. So there's that. And there's also, of course, like the etymology, like philometh is from the Greek word philometheia, which means love of learning. And that seems that there are a lot of hard lessons that came from uh, living in that place, as I'm sure uh, most people who grew up in the area know know well. Because you, you talked a little bit about your pursuing another degree in fiction, and um, I kind of want to geek out a little bit on the writing itself and the crafting. There's so much that you do around lineation and enjambment where it just creates these really startling surprises in a lot of the poems. And I was curious, you know, how you think about those surprises and shifts that you're making moving from line to line in relationship to some of these stories that you're telling about Philomath and, and other places in the area or places that have similar qualities to the, the towns that you grew up in. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, great question. I, in terms of the enjambment, um, one thing that I love about poetry that it's harder to approximate this kind of reading experience, I think, in prose, is that working with silence in the way that you can uh, at a line ending, for instance, say, taking a verb that initially reads as intransitive and making it transitive when you get to the next line break, or a, a noun, something that seems like a finished clause, and then it ends up being like a noun phrase or something. I I, it might be easier for me to just like read an example of such a, a line break. This one's from Golden. And the lines, I'll just pause briefly at the end of each line break. People were probably grateful then to leave this earthly kingdom not knowing. Every life is an afterlife and heaven is just a ghost town that never ends. So when you come to a line break like in heaven is just a ghost, uh, town that never ends. There's that pause allows for a kind of what I would call kind of fruitful misunderstanding, where you can at once read the line as being a kind of discrete unit of experience. Heaven is just a ghost. But then also when you get to that next line and have to revise that initial impression, heaven is just a ghost town that never ends. You have both of those 
readings in mind and the second one doesn't cancel out the first one. So being able to have a kind of multiverse of readings and that you can do that through um, careful line breaks and even softer pauses like Sejere, um, I I try to exploit that, um, as, <laughs> as you mentioned, um, quite a bit throughout the book. I, I write with silence very much in mind and what silence can say, um, not just the words that are on the page, but that that space that's pressing in around it, particularly in a poem. Yeah, there's something about that that fruitful misunderstanding that um, there are a couple of poems where I feel like you really sort of just take it to the max, where um, because you're you're doing that both in your line breaks and through the the cisura in the middle of the line, you've got parts of the poem where there's um, sort of white space sort of floating in the middle and it feels almost ghostly that there's this moment of, of pause within each line as well as at the ends. And so there's um, an abundance of multiple readings of, of those poems. And I'm curious about your choice to, to include that sort of um, almost negative space in the middle of those poems. Yeah, yeah. One thing I think of is there are a lot of distances and separations in, in the book. Uh, thematically and I think form is not separate from content so I think that the form is speaking to those distances also there's a way in which you'll notice too that those breaks the sejury they're of different lengths um, some some are smaller some are longer and I remember my thesis advisor Iowa asked me he's like why are they different lengths you know uh, why don't you just have like a standard length of of distance when you when you use a cesura. And I guess the way that I think of it is each of those spaces is a unit of silence or rest, but it's also a unit of movement. So you're sort of directing the reader's eye across the page, right? And like in music notation, you have a half rest, a quarter rest, a whole rest, et cetera, and you can modulate speed and kind of direct how quickly someone's moving through that piece of music. And I thought to try to approximate that in the poem, since poetry is specifically concerned with with music and language, it felt like a worthwhile attempt anyway. So, so there are kind of softer breaks where I don't think as much pause is required, and then there are longer breaks which the longer the break is or the longer the space, the more emphasis you get on that last word before it. Yeah, if that makes any sense. Absolutely, it does. It made me curious whether, as you're talking about musical notation and the relationship between that and what you're doing in these poems, if your background as a, as a harpist and as a dancer, if, if that was something that you were bringing forward intentionally or just because you've had that training, if it came out in these poems through, in that way. Yeah, thank you, Jennifer. I, I don't think I, I don't think it came about intentionally. I, I think I just started doing it, and then I started figuring out possible reasons for why I was doing it. But yeah, I, I definitely do feel like the music training and the dance training impacted though, because I think just wanting to have that level of control to over how quickly someone's moving through the poem, it's almost kind of choreographic. And I think that that's like the sort of dancer choreographer in me, right? I think, well, I could slow the reader down here, which seems like the, the right thing for that moment in the poem. And so then I'll do that. But I, I think that that probably comes 
comes a little bit from the from the dance. <laughs> yeah, I definitely had that experience of the poems working on my body in the way that direction from choreography might. So that was um, oh yeah. Yay. <laughs> I, I was also curious about uh, many of the poems in the book are are quite long compared to sort of what I think of as your average poem. Um, and you've got many of these multi-page poems and several of them are, are kind of written as one long stanza. And I was curious about um, that choice for, formally to write in that way and what you, you know, what you think that enables to have these, you know, six, seven page poems that just do um, sort of run one one stanza across that whole length for a reader. Yeah, I know I'm asking a lot of the reader <laughs> with those ones. It's I think, um, <laughs> thank you. I think one of the things for me is that all of those poems actually were much longer uh, before I edited them down. The working in the kind of single stanza or the stickic form gives you a kind of momentum um, a sort of forward rushing through the poem. And I think that that kind of carried me in a lot of ways. The form itself kind of gave me permission to move swiftly forward. And I also think that, so I was able to be immersed in the, in the kind of, in the music and in the story, because certainly with beginning wax to bronze at Chemeketa Community College, there's that narrative element. Uh, it all kind of starts and ends in scene and their you know meditations and their conversations, but it's actually happening in a linear fashion. So I think that 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 form enabled me to inhabit that space and that narrative and those meditations in a in a way that sort of enabled me to remain with them longer, if that makes any sense, and then invite the reader to remain in those spaces longer. So I think that the, the length of those sort of did begin uh, with, that, with that form. I also had a teacher at Bennington named Michael Dumanis, and he would always tell me to sort of like ask myself why I was making a stanza break. Like, if you don't have a good reason for having the stanza break, then maybe it doesn't need to be there. And so I think I also had those words like in the back of, of my head when I was writing some of these where it's like, well, maybe, maybe I don't need a stanza break there. So maybe I shouldn't have one. So I would just move forward. Um, but I think that the long form to answer your question, the other side of it, the other part of your question is, I think that the longer forms like enable you to be enable a, a reader to be immersed in in the world like you can create an atmosphere a, a short lyric poem the beauty of it the sort of stroke of the lyre poem is that you can you can embody it and you sort of write and rewrite it by having it embodied and you can do that with a with a short poem and there's an incredible beauty and compression to that which I greatly admire but these poems are doing something different in that they're kind of creating an atmosphere and a, a world that I want the reader to linger in a little bit longer to, to feel inside of it. Um, ideally, the poem, they also feel it um, inside of, and would want to memorize it, but um, it's not as realistic that that would be the case, right? So more that the, the poem is kind of containing them for that prolonged moment. 
if that makes sense. Not to make it sound scary or claustrophobic. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it, it totally makes sense in the context of what you're doing with the book as a whole, where um, you know, you're, you're evoking these, these places that you've inhabited at different points in your life, and perhaps many of the readers hadn't. So you know, creating this long, much longer, more developed space for us to kind of dwell in so that we, we can be there in those experiences too. Um, it's part yeah, of what I dwell. love so much what about this. What a great this. word! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's the word for it—an <laughs> invitation to dwell. Absolutely. I had another question that I wanted to ask about these um, multiple poems that you have in the book called "Out of Body," and there's—we've talked a little bit about embodiment of different kinds, and um, I was just curious about um, how you're thinking about those poems of being out of body in relationship to being in place or out of place to dwelling in the body or not. Could you share a little bit about that? Yeah, the answer is strange. Uh, uh, so the poems kind of began with this story that my mother would tell me about this out of body experience that she had during a canoe accident. And she was like looking down on herself, she said. And I remember her describing that to me when I was a small child and just it felt like a kind of mystical experience that my mother had had. And I thought, oh, it's proof that there's that there's a soul that lives outside of the body. You know, this is what my child mind, where my child mind went. And and there was something comforting to me about thinking about my mother having had that experience. And then after she died, and a number of those poems, the out-of-body poems are elegiac in nature. They're kind of foreign to, to my mother in some way. I found myself coming back to that. And and thinking about um, embodiment and disembodiment and how both of those things kind of naturally intermingle with each other in the space of a poem. I mean, it's like this thing that lies kind of neither dead nor alive, sort of dormant until someone picks it up and and, and resurrects it in their imagination, right? So that's I, that's kind of the origin story for it. Sorry, that's a very strange answer. Um, but, but reality is strange and poems are strange. In this episode, we heard from Danica Kelly and Christopher Rose, Atsuro Riley and David Beispiel, and Devin Walker-Figueroa and Jennifer Perrine in conversations from the 2021 Portland Book Festival. The 2022 Portland Book Festival takes place all in person in downtown Portland on Saturday, November 5th. More information at literary-arts.org. This has been Literary Arts The Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Andrew Proctor. The show is produced by Crystal Liguori and Donald Orr for Radio and Podcast, with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swem. Special thanks to literary arts marketing staff, Jyoti Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Amanda Bullock, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.